Well, good morning again, and welcome to First Free. Um, I'm excited to be in this season of Lent and to be exploring uh, gospel stories about food, uh, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. I uh, love food. One commentator, uh, Robert Karras, he said, In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. And um, I love that. It's true. Food and the importance of food is uh, all over the Gospel of Luke. And my hope is that we can explore um, some of the implications of that for our lives today. So today we're going to journey through this short story and see what God might have for us. So we'll begin at the beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. It begins and it says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain. And then they would rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Uh, just to kind of illustrate the gap between present day and when that story happens, let me just say, I didn't even know you could do that. Like, I didn't know you could pick a thing of grain, rub it, get something out that you could just eat right there. I thought grain you like grind up and make bread or pasta or cookies. But I guess you could just eat it and that's what they were doing. And right from the beginning, Luke wants us to know when this event took place. One Sabbath. This was on a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was, of course, very, very important for the Jewish people. Remember, for over a hundred years, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, their worth was literally defined by how many bricks they made. And there were no breaks. Uh, Listen to this. This is in Exodus 1, verses 11 through 14. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And if you know that story, you know that God then uses Moses to free the people from Egypt. 
And shortly after that, while they're still in the wilderness, journeying together, wondering what's next, God gives them uh, all sorts of guidelines for their community. But we all know of these Ten Commandments, right? These are the big hitters. They're the ones that get carved in stone. They're the ones that were in our public schools for a really long time. We all know them. And one of them is to observe the Sabbath as a day of rest from work. And so right as they're freed, God is letting them know that their worth is no longer defined by their work. Just like God rested on the seventh day to delight in his work of creation, so too the Israelites were meant to rest on the seventh day from their work and to delight in God. And while that was always important for the Israelites, right, it became a marker of who they were, it became even more important as we approach the time of Jesus. Even more important. Scholars call that time Second Temple Judaism. And it's extremely important, the Sabbath. Because at the time of Jesus, Israel is under Roman occupation. And so the Jewish people were rightfully concerned about upholding their culture and identity. And there's three practices up on the screen. Scholars in particular say that these three things serve to help nourish the Jewish identity during this time. One is dietary restrictions, right? No pork, no shellfish, um, all sorts of other rules, keep kosher, Another one was circumcision. And the third one was Sabbath observance. And one reason for the importance of those three things is because uh, they're pretty much all external. They're visible. Um, There's some way of knowing. Are you in or are you out? And, And that's important under a time of persecution and occupation. And so these three things were characteristic markers of Jewish identity. And uh, scholars say that they helped with the maintenance of group boundaries and even shared as emblems of group solidarity. In a contested and oppressive culture under Roman occupation, these practices helped the Jewish people understand who they were and who they were not. And these boundary markers were important, and we see that in the Gospels. As Jesus' critics often try to catch him doing things on the Sabbath that he's not supposed to do. And so on this particular Sabbath, Jesus is walking with his disciples. They pluck some grain and eat it. They're hungry. They're hungry, and they decide to have a snack on the go. They're grabbing the granola bar from their pocket and eating as they're on their way to something else. Now, it's important to note that, because you might think, well, maybe the, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees are mad because these guys are like stealing grain from someone's field. Like they're just plucking food from someone's field to eat it. Is that against the law? But it's super interesting that it's not. They weren't stealing grain. They're not violating any property rights. Um, 
Look at this. This is in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 to 25. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. Or if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands. But you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. These verses for the community of Israel were essentially provisions for the poor. Provisions for the needy. They're saying you can go in somebody else's vineyard or somebody else's grain field and eat. Eat as many grapes as you want. Eat as many grain kernels as your heart desires. Pick them with your hands, though, which is important. No one in the community should go hungry, we're essentially saying. Now, what's not allowed is for you to gather enough for tomorrow. So don't bring your bucket to the vineyard and store up a whole bunch of grapes and try to make a profit on them the next day, selling them to someone else. Don't use a sickle, right, to cut down whole sheaves of wheat to gather and take home. That would be stealing in the community. That would be seeking to profit or protect yourself long-term off your neighbor's work. But in the community of God, there is always enough, so you should be able to eat if you are hungry. I mean, what a beautiful provision. It meets the basic needs of people while still requiring a level of faith. You don't have to go hungry today, but you have to trust that God will still provide tomorrow. So when the disciples pluck the grain with their hands, they're enacting a provision already laid out for them in the Hebrew scriptures. They're addressing their hunger. And then in the next verse, verse 2, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Some of the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why are you breaking the law on the Sabbath? Again, they're not breaking the law by picking the grain. So they're breaking the law of the Sabbath in these Pharisees' view. And I love that Luke clarifies just some of the Pharisees are asking this. We don't got to throw all of them under the bus and basically just say, oh, the Pharisees, those people, they always get it wrong. But some of the Pharisees in this case, they ask, why would you violate one of the defining factors of who we are as a people? Why would you transgress one of our identity markers? So again, the disciples aren't stealing. That's not why some of the Pharisees are upset. But they're upset because even plucking grain, the simple action, is a visible sign of work on the Sabbath when no work is supposed to be done. And what I like is, even though the question was to the disciples, if you look at the next verse, Jesus steps in and responds. So some of the Pharisees are questioning the disciples, but Jesus steps in (laughs) and he says, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
Now this question, have you even read what David did to people who basically make a living reading scripture? There's like a diss in there. It's like going to the gym, you know, you got the, do you even lift, bro? Like it's, this is direct attack. Jesus responds with his sarcastic little mark, basically saying, do you even read scripture? Haven't you ever read the story about David and the bread? Again, this is insulting because the Pharisees prided themselves on having read that story. Having read it again and again and again. Having read all the stories. Having had the stories memorized. So why does Jesus bring this up? Well, the story Jesus is referencing is from 1 Samuel 21. It's verses 1 to 6, and I want to just read it for us. It's, it's an interesting story. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Well, David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. And as for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? In other words, I'm hungry and so are my men. What do you got? How about give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find? But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So, in this story, I know there's a lot going on, but just the point that Jesus is trying to make is that King David, the most beloved king of Israel, the king who is described as being a man after God's own heart, in this story... David is transgressing a law that was laid out in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. I'll read that for you next. Verse 5. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two-tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, to the priests, who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Okay, so why does Jesus share this story about King David? Why tell that story? 
what does that story have to do with the story about plucking the grain from today? Is King David violating the Sabbath in that story? Doesn't seem like it. Nothing in 1 Samuel seems to communicate that idea. According to the New Testament scholar Joel Green, he says what's going on here is an analogy of the relaxation of legal observance in the face of human need. On the one hand, the story is for the use of bread reserved for the priesthood, and the other story is about plucking the grain on the Sabbath. So two out of those three boundary markers are at play here, food and Sabbath. And Jesus is willing to at least bend, if not transgress, the boundary marker in the face of human need. And he's invoking King David to say that there is historic precedence for this. King David was willing to go against the Levitical teachings because his men were hungry and there was a greater purpose. King David says he's on a, he's on a mission, a greater mission. And because legitimate needs matter to God, they mattered to David. And because David deeply knew the heart of God, he knew that law could be reinterpreted so that it was actually for the good of God's people. And Jesus is able to do this in regards to the Sabbath, because as Jesus says in the next verse, in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Many of the references to Sabbath in the Old Testament, in the Torah, use an interesting phrase. They almost always refer to it as a Sabbath to the Lord. Here's just a few of the times that I could fit on one uh, screen. Exodus 16:23. He said to them, "This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord." And in verse 25, "Eat it today," Moses said, "because today is a Sabbath to the Lord." Exodus 20, verse 8. This is in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And in Leviticus 23, 3, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Jesus is filling in the blank of who is the Lord that this Sabbath is to. And he's saying, it's me. Jesus is saying, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only is Jesus showing the Pharisees how to correctly interpret Scripture, how to correctly interpret Sabbath laws, But he's claiming to be the Lord for whom and to whom the Sabbath is celebrated. A couple verses later in this story, in Luke 6 verse 9, Jesus is about to heal a man's withered hand. 
and again, it happens to be on the Sabbath. And in that story, right after this one, it says there's some Pharisees who are there, and the reason they're there is because they want to see if Jesus is going to do anything he's not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So before Jesus does anything, he's somehow made aware of these people, and he asks the man with the withered hand to stand up in the middle of basically the church service. Um, which, which had to be kind of awkward. Can you imagine if you're here and you're, you know, in deep pain or suffering, uh, a physical issue, and you know that there's some people in the room who don't want uh, anything good to happen to you that day, and yet the teacher up at the front says, hey, stand up in the middle of everyone. So Jesus does that, and then he says... Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? With those Pharisees there and that man with the withered hand, Jesus is kind of cutting through the questions they're asking and getting to the heart of the matter. He wants us to recognize that the heart of God for the Sabbath goes deeper than boundary markers. He wants his people to know that the Sabbath is meant to do good and to save life. It's not meant to do evil or harm and destroy life. Anywhere that spiritual practices are doing harm or destroying life, They're out of alignment for God's purposes for them. In our story, Jesus is essentially acknowledges, yeah, my disciples are hungry. Hunger, as a basic part of being human, is to be honored. The hungry have the right to sustenance, which God has provided through his creation. Jesus understands that even the Old Testament scriptures provide a provision for the hunger of the poor, built right into God's design for his society. And so Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is honoring the human and the human condition on the Sabbath by honoring human hunger, particularly the hunger of his disciples. Jesus is not interested in boundary markers when they make life harder for the poor and marginalized in the community. That's essentially what would happen if you couldn't pick those grain on the Sabbath. Because the people who are needing to just pluck the heads of grain were the poor and needy in the community. And so the religious teachers were essentially saying, you don't get to do that. So their boundary marker of defining who they were cut off sustenance for the poor and needy. And Jesus is not allowing that. It's sort of like, I mean, it's kind of a weird ethical thing. It, remind, it makes me think of like an electric car 
or like a LEED certified building. Why? Those are like great things to uh, aspire to. They really are. I think they're, they're much better for the environment. But if you start judging, who can access those though? Um, primarily the wealthy. And so if we start judging people's character based on whether or not they can you know, have an electric car or if people walk by and think, oh, it's such a shame that First Free isn't LEED certified yet. Um, shame on them. Who, who is that affecting, right? Uh, and so the, the way that the Pharisees were interpreting the Sabbath law made it so that only those with enough food could actually not need to work on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus simply won't have that. He's not going to play that game. Further on, Mark tells this same story in his gospel. In chapter 2 of his gospel, he tells this same story, but he adds an extra phrase at the end of it. He has Jesus say in Mark 2.27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. One way to think about the Sabbath for the ancient Jewish community was as a boundary marker. But how should we think about it for us? After Jesus. What I love is that Jesus, even in the midst of this culture, where Sabbath was used more as a way to say who's in and who's out, even to the point of abuse, even in that culture, Jesus doesn't say, let's just abolish it and get rid of it. He reframes the Sabbath so that it's actually for our good. And he lets us know The Sabbath was made for you. Not you for the Sabbath. Like you got to fit into it and make sure you're doing it so that it pleases God. It was made for you. (coughs) And this is really important as we're in the midst of a season of Lent. A season where you're being asked... Uh, quite bluntly from the stage by Maggie, by me, by others to fast to spend more time praying to give to the point of feeling stretched you're being asked to enter into spiritual practices and as we seek to journey to the cross with Jesus in this season of Lent These practices are only valuable if we seek to practice them in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. They were made for us. In other words, they're for our good, not God's good. And this makes a big difference. Why? Why does it matter that we understand spiritual practices for our good? In closing, I'll just give you two two brief reasons. Why does this matter? One, so that we actually do them. We can be compelled to do something out of duty or obligation, but eventually we will stop doing it. 
what that does is it creates in us either a sort of hypocritical heart that wants to be seen to do something but knows on the inside it's not that interested in doing it. Or it creates a resentful heart. Sure, I'll do this, but I'm angry that I have to. I'm angry at God, I'm angry at others that it's required of me. Or even an apathetic heart. I'm just not going to do it. It's too much work. Why would I do that? No one's looking, no thanks. If we practice something only out of duty or obligation, the spiritual practice will not have its intended purpose of forming us more into the likeness of Christ. We need to understand spiritual practices as gifts for our good so that they actually are gifts forming us into goodness. So that's the first reason. We have to understand them as gifts so that we actually do them. The second reason that we need to understand spiritual practices as gifts for our good is because otherwise it affects our view of God. Sometimes uh, subconsciously and other times we're more aware of it, but it can actually diminish our view of God. Does God need me to practice Sabbath? so that he feels good about himself? Does God need me to give money to my church so that he knows I think he's important and he can have his ego stroked? Does God need me to pray so that he doesn't feel lonely? Does God need me to to worship, to show up to church, to fast? If we're not careful, we can make God into some kind of insecure egomaniac. Please sing to me. Tell me how good I am. That wasn't enough. Sing the chorus again. Again, please. It hasn't quite landed. Please fast and give me your money. And make your life harder so that it will please me because I'm some kind of masochist who takes joy in seeing your life be harder and more painful. What if God invited you to give away your money because it was actually better for you and, of course, others? Because living a simpler, a more minimalistic life actually causes you to focus on what matters most and not miss out on the things of life that actually bring deep joy and meaning and fullness. And because sharing your resources betters the quality of life for those in need. What if God invited you to fast from social media or cable news or ice cream because it was actually better for you? With less news and information sort of overstimulating you, you could actually let your mind and soul be still enough to realize the deeper desires in your life, like what you actually want. Not what the advertisements 
tell you you should want. Or maybe by cutting down your sugar intake, you realize your body actually has more energy and you can go and enjoy the life God has created with less lethargy. Like, what if you weren't made for spiritual practices? As if doing them appeased a God who was otherwise angry and disappointed in you. But what if spiritual practices were made for you? Because they open you up to more of the goodness of God in your life. And they help you to be more human. Invite the band up at this time. I mean, could it be that God is actually that good? That all the things that we think are requirements from God to appease God, to please God, to make God happy, to make God love us, were actually for us. Could it be that the Sabbath is actually a gift that invites us into a way of life that actually works, that's actually sustainable, that's actually good for us? Could God actually be that good?